Hello and welcome to The Travel Diaries Season 2. It's great to be back. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel journalist and editor. And here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. And don't forget there's all of season one to catch up on. Just hit subscribe and take a look through the feed. I can assure you it's Wanderlust guaranteed. I hope you all had a lovely Christmas. God, that feels like a while ago. And a very happy new year. Since we last spoke, I've been busy recording episodes with some brilliant guests for this season that I can't wait to share with you. And I also got married in December, so it's been a really exciting and busy time. Thank you so much to those of you who've been in touch. I've loved hearing from you. Some of you have asked me about my own travels and as I'm going to be traveling a lot more during this season for work, I'll keep you posted on where I'm heading. Last week, I visited one of the most hotly tipped new openings in the UK, the Newt in Somerset, which I'm sure a lot of you have already read about, but I'll fill you in on what I thought later on in the show. And another place that I loved, I stayed after my wedding actually at what I guess I would definitely describe as one of my hidden gems now. It's called Beaverbrook. It's a country house hotel just outside of London in the Surrey Hills. It's beautiful, so historic. It was owned by Lord Beaverbrook and people like Winston Churchill and Elizabeth Taylor used to go there for what I can only imagine were very glamorous holidays. And its restaurant serves some of the best Japanese food I've ever eaten. And speaking of delicious food, it's time to introduce today's guest. He's graced our screens and lined our bookshelves for over 25 years, cooking up cuisine from all over the world. Fish is his great love, served in his restaurant empire from Padstow, Cornwall to Sydney, Australia. It is, of course, Rick Stein. Along with his travel diaries, we talk about the very surprising career path he originally pursued that had nothing to do with food and might make you laugh. How the loss of his father led him on a real voyage of self-discovery around the world. And he reveals which destinations he's tipping for this year's culinary hit list. All that and more coming up. Well, I am here with culinary royalty, Rick Stein. Welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you very much for um, inviting me, actually, because I love talking about the travels. I, I saw that you spend about six months of, is it six months of every year travelling? Well, I suppose so, if you add up. I mean, I've got um, two restaurants in Australia, so I go there for about... I go there three times a year. Well, that takes up, you know, getting on for two months. The other four months, either holidays or, or filming. So, yeah, I suppose it would be about right. Yeah. So we've got a lot of travel to cover. But let's start right at the beginning with chapter one of yes. your travel diaries. And that is your earliest childhood travel memory. Well, it's rather an unfortunate one, really. But when I was very little, um, my parents used to take me to the Silly Isles quite often. So I've got really fond memories of the Silly Isles and the first overseas trip I ever did, if you like. And the Silly Isles are off the coast? Just of off the coast of Cornwall, Cornwall. yeah. Um, not easy to get to. Well, not easy. And in those days, there was no, there was a plane, because uh, I can remember the f- second trip going on the plane. But the first trip was on the, the Salonian, which is the little boat that between Penzance and St Mary's and the Isles of Scilly and because 
actually quite a lot of the way is fairly shallow. It's got a very, very um, flat bottom. And I was appallingly seasick. I can remember, you probably can, anybody can, aged about six. And the thing that I remember most was, for some reason, I I looked into the engine room and there was this massive engine, smell of sort of diesel and smoke, and feeling terribly nauseous. Feel the nausea rising, as you would describe it. (laughs) And did you love the Silly Isles, though, once you made it there? Yes, I did. I mean, it's just a a magic part of of the the country, really. And um, I think anybody that, that goes there feels the same way, because, you know... Cornwall's not part part of the UK and, and the Silly Isles is not part of Cornwall, really. So you're feeling really somewhere very different. And I think islands generally have that sort of effect mm. on people. So mm. I, I love it. Yeah, I haven't been back there for a while, but um, I'd love to go back. So you grew up in two of the most beautiful parts of England. First, the Cotswolds in Oxfordshire and then, of course, Cornwall. Yes. So for our international listeners who might not be familiar with Cornwall can you bring the English Riviera to life <laughs> well I suppose it's the, the the thing about Cornwall is it's on the peninsula jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean and Land's End of course is at the end of it so it's sort of three parts surrounded by water and therefore and quite a narrow peninsula therefore the the sea and the seafaring and fishing have an immense influence on it um, there's a sort of Celtic tradition in all those three parts of, of the UK and Ireland. And there's sort of slightly sort of mystical feel about it. I remember years ago going to a Druid ceremony um, in Liscard in Cornwall and thinking this is quite something. Everybody dressed up in pale blue, um, night looked like night dresses. There is a sort of knot of this world of the UK quality about Cornwall. And I think that's what really... Um, draws people there apart from the fact of the lovely beaches fantastic fish great produce so it's it's a bit special in everybody's in everybody's heart i think that knows Mm. that and it's a bit like going to france it's part of one's childhood that most of us went to holiday on holiday to cornwall as indeed i did in the first place and of course now the gorgeous village of padstow has been nicknamed padstow because of your restaurant empire there i remember making my own pilgrimage down there uh, with my mum as a teenager and trying your famous fish and chips and looking out at the harbour it's a really special place, isn't it? For people who want to go there and try some of your signature food, there's a kind of spectrum of different restaurants that they can go to, aren't there? Well, that's right. The The reason for that is that from the early days, we just had, had the one restaurant, which was the seafood restaurant. But I felt that if we wanted to attract people to come to Pasto and stay, we would need to have different restaurants at different price ranges so I first we first opened this is my ex myself and my ex-wife Jill we first opened a bistro which was designed to be not seafood orientated more meat orientated although these days it's sort of almost (laughs) I don't know 70% seafood then we opened a cafe for the same reason that was sort of cheaper and more informal and finally not finally then we opened the fish and chip shop which was based on my travels in mainly in North Yorkshire because I find the fish and chips in North Yorkshire exceptional and in Scotland, on the east coast of Scotland as well. 
and and finally we've opened a little seafood bar which is sort of actually my homage to similar places in france just a place that sells mostly cold platter de frida mer little platters of prawns cold lobsters crab and mayonnaise that sort of thing so it's just a, a culinary adventure basically when you go down there well that's right and also now uh, which is actually very rewarding for us all there's like two very famous chefs with restaurants in and around pesto first paul ainsworth number six and and second um nathan outlaw at port isaac so it's sort of like a bit of a gastronomic destination i think now Absolutely. But is it fair to say that food and being a chef wasn't necessarily the first port of call, that you didn't have a burning desire to be a chef immediately? No, not really. I mean, I I opened a nightclub in Padstow originally with a friend of mine. And um, well, it was an existing nightclub, which in itself is quite weird because Padstow's, you know, a fishing, people say village, but actually it is a town. So were you a bit of a party area. animal then? Well, I had discos. I had um, like mobile discos, which I op- I had two. Yeah. One which I looked after and one which my then wife, Jill, looked after. So we used to do like local village halls and parties and pubs and things. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for somewhere to sort of have a permanent sort of residence for the dis- disco. Bought this club. But of course, I had no idea about licensing laws. It was very, very tricky to keep a place like that running within the, the, the law. And eventually, really, because neither myself or Johnny, my friend, were sort of like well versed in running nightclubs, it had late hours and drinking late at night. We got like closed down. And I opened the restaurant as a way of sort of keeping going in the building, really, and mm. sort of never looked back. So do we, like, do we have the police to thank for your culinary... Well, Holly, that's really interesting you should say that, because in fact, about, I don't know, six, eight years after I opened the restaurant, I got invited by the um, inspector who had closed down the club round to tea. <laughs> and um, he, just, he just said... Um, in a way, we we were sad to have to close you down because you, but you were so naive and so silly. He said, "I can only say that I'm very pleased for you what you've done with the place." Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so moving on to chapter two, then, which is the first place that you fell in love with. Well, I suppose the first place I fell in love with was was France. Really, I mean, my parents. I was lucky in that my parents travelled a great deal not with the children as much as they did with themselves. We were always a bit sort of miffed when we got postcards from Italy or San Francisco or Cape (laughs) Town. But we did go on family holidays, first to France and then to Spain and then in Italy. So I suppose it was, for me, French food was a sort of um, early awakening as to the, um, the, the wonders of sort of foreign cuisine. And I will remember about 14 going to um, on an exchange with myself and my sister Henrietta to northern France near Cambrai to some friends of my my father's who had a, um, it was a sugar beet farm that also grew Petit Pois and uh, Arico Vert. And they were were really well off, these farmers. They had a chateau and we stayed in the chateau. And um, we were served on by a butler. We were given breakfast lunch and dinner every day and sometimes there was just me and my sister on our own with this butler who served us with white gloves and I always remember the the fantastic food I mean 
the, the steaks, like the sort of, we served half a whole fillet steak with a delicious sort of red wine sauce, fantastic pommes frites, mm-hmm. particularly the, the uh, petit pois, which the family grew, but which we would have from, from a jar, of course. And, and for me, as a 14-year-old, I couldn't believe that I was served local cider, fizzy cider, by the butler with his white gloved hand. <laughs> and to be served like that as 14 was very, very grown up, I must say. Yeah. And so was that your first kind of dip in, dipping your toe into your love of food? Well, it was really. I mean, I'd been on other trips. I do remember an early trip to Spain when I was about eight or nine, I suppose, to the um, Cantabria we went on a family holiday to a place called Laredo on the on the coast, and I remember I can't remember why, but having a a, a dish of squid cooked in its own ink, um, and I think I was probably trying to show off to my parents by saying, "Yes, this is lovely." Very fond memories. And of course, we're here to talk about your wonderful book, Secret France, which I have loved leafing through. I love that there's both recipes and your writing because, of course, you are also a very talented writer. I mean, well, thank you, Holly. I didn't, you know, appreciate that. <laughs> well, you studied English at Oxford. I'm sure that was a good background. Um, Probably, yeah. And I uh, have really enjoyed reading it. So, where would your very favourite place in France be? I would have a, a very big sort of trying to influence people to go to the Auvergne. Right? It's one of those parts of France which isn't so visited by British people. Um, Where in France is that? It's right in the Massif Centrale. Right. And, uh, not only the Auvergne, but I would urge people to go to the town, the city of Clermont-Ferrand, which is the capital city of that area, simply because I think it's where the Michelin Tower Company ha- has its big tar factories, but the city itself is a university city. It's got a most beautiful cathedral. It's got its own sort of culture, and it's not very well visited by, by tourists. And um, I, I can't quite understand why, because I, I loved it. But, but then you've got the surrounding countryside, which is the Auvergne, which is really steep hills, almost verging into mountains, but not quite. And actually, some of, it's a sort of place that time forgot. So a lot of the local restaurants in the Auvergne are very, very well run and specialised in only local food so it's, it's a, a place it's a, to go for an authentic French experience I would I would say absolutely yeah mm. and um so that that for me I mean there's obviously wonderful other parts that I visited the Jura particularly which I love and um Roussillon right down at Calore and Pepignon where we've got this fantastic Cat- Catalonian food but I think the Auvergne was the one that I the memory I bring back the mm. Auvergne and Clermont Ferrand since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com ACAST, code ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So chapter three, um, Rick, is the place where you learnt the most about yourself. Where would that be? Well, I, I, it would be Australia, really. I was sort of lucky or unlucky enough to, um, no, lucky enough, really, to go there on a sort of gap year. And I mean, this was like in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It was a gap year and a half. And um, I was sort of fresh out of rather a sort of secure and um, family-based background. But my father sadly died around that time. And I'd sort of left to go to... Um, Australia is a way of sort of running away from problems at home. Yeah. And it, it was You couldn't just, have gone much further. You could not. You could not. But it was as it was a rite of passage for me and I mm-hmm. was a rather a rather sheltered, not particularly I thought adventurous boy, and I came out a lot more adventurous and a lot more aware of um, what goes on in the world because I not only went there, I then went on to New Zealand and then Mexico and the States and Canada and then back through Europe so I came back a different person really but it's Australia that I owe I owe my that was the most really really formative time I was like 19 20 oh, I spent wow. about four months out in the outback near Alice Springs working on a railway for a railway gang which is basically people that looked after the track Wow, very was, remote. Isn't it was it? very, very remote, and um, you know, I, I've never forgotten the landscape there. And um, every time I sort of see someone, it's funny. In a recent program, I went to Iceland, um, and it, it sort of reminded me weirdly of the set, the centre of Australia. Not obviously because of the temperature, but because of the enormity of nature when you're in a place where there's nobody. Mm. And and the effect it has on you as a as a as a human being, and I, I know I've spoken to so many people that have been to Iceland since then and said the same thing. That yes. it, it's a sort of must go sort of place. The, the big skies, the, the big skies, yeah. this sense of sort of gosh, we are so meaningless, really. Mm, amongst all of that, yes. So, 
1920 that is such a difficult age for somebody to go for anyone to go through a loss like that would you say then that your travel in Australia was therapeutic for you yes it certainly was I mean and uh, I've always since then retained a love of Australia which uh, continues to this day I just I just love the people there I love the country and I love their sort of um, can-do attitude um, and does travel still serve the same purpose for you now, would you I say? I mean, it certainly does. And I mean, you know, I suppose I, I go to Australia. I, I reckon I've been well over 100 times to Australia now. And I, whenever I get on the plane, right? How do you cope Easter, with that flight as a Well, decide? I quite like the flight, actually. I mean, because generally I tend to go with BA only because they, they've all been to the restaurant in Padstow. <laughs> so there's always one of the stewards saying, I was there at your place last week. And it's sort of... I don't know, it just feels more sort of natural to be on this sort of massive journey. And the flight itself, I really love because I, you know, I actually tend to listen to um, the radio or, or listen to music rather than watch films. I just relax. The jet lag is another matter. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So chapter four then is your all time favourite destination, my favourite chapter. It's such a difficult one because I've been, you know, I mean, I'm lucky I've been to so many places. And a lot of them I've been to with, um, you know, filming. And uh, so what you tend to do, because it makes for good filming, is fall in love with some place. Because if you were saying, well, I'm here, but I don't really like it, what's the point of being there? Yeah. Um, I I think probably for various reasons, I think India would be... um, probably my favorite i mean and i would just say rajasthan of all the places i've been there just simply because it's it's so vast it's so dry it's almost like being in the sort of wild west in a funny sort of way and it's just just this sense of openness there and fantastic food of course and brilliant sort of palaces that you end up staying in um i remember i can't remember where it was now but i remember being in this sort of fantastic um palatial bedroom with sort of stained glass everywhere and being told oh well this is where whoever the prince was that lived the palace where he used to meet with his concubines oh my god so you don't get that sort of anywhere no. else so, um and you spent a great deal of time in india yeah i just i love it i mean i think it's one of those places that you you know love or hate because i mean you know the poverty and all all that and the but but it, it, I just find the sort of exoticness of it and the, the friendliness of the people. It's very, mm. very important that. that and what you know, about the cuisine? I mean, well, obviously I mean, it's the, so varied. So where, where is your favourite food in um, India? Well, I, I suppose generally the, the cooking of northern India is my favourite. But one has to bear in mind there's an awful lot of butter and yogurt in that sort of cooking. <laughs> yeah, you so can't eat it every day. You can't eat it every day. But I, I suppose, um, I mean, thinking of particular favourites, Lucknow, I really like the food. I really like the sort of um, royal food or the mogul food of, of Lucknow. The only problem I have with Lucknow is we were filming there. And, you know, I obviously when I'm filming, everything looks wonderful or not. But you are working, right? You are filming. And really, if there's one place I'd really love to go back, it's Lucknow on holiday and really taking all those um, things that I had to sort of talk about. 
but then take them with a sort of there's something about being on holiday that's totally different yeah when you're filming you're just scratching the surface really not getting to fully immerse yourself in it you don't have time because you've got of course, to, you know, you've got to keep schedule. talking to people and you've got to keep moving. I so mean, what's luck now like? Because I, I don't know much about it. Well, I mean, it's a sort of, um, it's one of the centres of mogul cooking. So it's like the, the moguls, you know, came up down from Persia with this fantastically rich meat um, driven food at one stage, one of the, the sort of princes in luck now were feeding his chickens saffron or was it gold leaf i'm not sure one or the other in the hope that the flesh would turn out either colored gold or flavored scented with saffron so it's just that sort of um i suppose it's the same as like in istanbul a sort of like royal cooking it's so wonderfully over the top yeah and at lucknow is one of the homes of biryani which i think it's so hard to cook a perfect biryani Mm. But they do it in luck now. Mm, that's the place to go for it. Yeah. How about a favourite city? Well, I suppose I'd have I'd have to say Sydney. Really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm only saying I'd have to say it because I go there so often. What is it about Sydney that you love? The thing about Sydney, unusually, and there's a few other cities around the world, is it's on it's on an ocean. It's not on a river. It's on the ocean. Mm. And the other thing is that there's a lot of really lovely ocean beaches in Sydney. Plus. The main town is in a big estuary. So even if you're not on a surfing beach, you've got these fantastic beaches in the sort of like Sydney water area. So that there's nowhere really in Sydney, unless you go out right deep out west, where you're not close to the sea and where you can just go and go for a swim, which is one of my great delights. Yeah. Plus the climate isn't too bad. And the food is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I've witnessed that because I've been going to Sydney, what, since I was 19. These days, the standard of c- cooking is so high. But it's funny, even in the 80s, I was going there. And I, I sort of almost remember the time when suddenly chefs, young people started cooking. Because at one stage in the early 80s, I remember talking to a Frenchman who'd had a restaurant in Paris, in Avalon, in northern Sydney, on the beach. And he was running a um, general store, like a post office with, you know, and I said, got talking to him and I said, well, why don't you carry on run, opening a restaurant? You do so well here. And he said, I can't get anybody to work in restaurants. Everybody really? wants to be on the beach. And this was like 1984. <laughs> right. By 1988, everything was different and people really wanted to, to, to be cooks, to be waiters. And now it's a very sophisticated a real culinary destination. Yeah, it is. Speaking of which, I mean, I'm a, a foodie traveller, I'd say. I, I love food. And I'm always trying to keep my ear to the ground for where's the kind of next hot place when it comes to cuisine, somewhere that's a bit under the radar. Do you have any recommendations? The one place I have and I would like to go is Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, because yeah. I've heard great things about Tbilisi. And I will go there in the next two or three years. I think it's just because of... Um, it's an incredibly fertile part of the world. There's a, wines sort of originated, or the wines that we know in Georgia. And I think there's a 
there's a great sort of culture and a great sort of pride about what what they're doing there i can't add any more there than that because i haven't been there but every time i meet people have been there they say you've got to go mm, definitely feels like a hot destination yes. for this year yes. we just need a few more direct flights from the uk well i i know i mean uh, i think it's about what five hours six hours but mm. there are, there's only like a couple One of airlines. airline yeah yeah what's the food like there do you know well, I I don't, but I imagine it's sort of Mediterranean because it's the same climate. So I imagine there's quite a lot of olive oil cooking, but um, probably mixed with the sort of um, same sort of food as you get in um, the Ukraine. I don't know. Mm. As a tourist, are you driven by food in terms of deciding where you would go? Totally driven by food. Really? I mean, it's the first the first... And the most important part of any trip, planning any trip, I won't go anywhere where I don't think the food's any good because oh, I just get I just get a bit cast down, you know. I mean, it's food first and then sort of cultural stuff second. Yeah. But I need both, to be honest. And that's why I think the programs we did called Long Weekends were so successful because mm. they were driven by food. But I needed some history to throw in and some atmosphere. And that's why somewhere like Bologna surprisingly was one of the most popular of my destinations because it's not actually a city although it's probably in Italian terms the most famous city in the whole country for food but a lot of British people didn't know that but for me I mean the food was fabulous incredibly rich tons and tons of parmesan tons of prosciutto everything sort of wrapped in masses of prosciutto and parmesan inside Is it where spaghetti bolognese comes from? Of course, and it's also yeah. the home of ragu bolognese, which they always do with tagliatelle, not with spaghetti. Mm. Plus, they have this fantastic wine called Sangiovese, which is quite, it's not particularly full-bodied, but and it's quite acidic, but it really works with their rich cooking. I've heard that Bologna is a fantastic yeah. city, and I loved watching it on your long weekend series so many hidden gems which actually leads us on to chapter five which is your favorite hidden gem could you tell us about a destination we might not know so much about um it's my sort of job to sort of um unveil hidden gems really and i suppose in a sense that's what secret france is all about as as i mentioned i think um the Auvergne and um um claremont ferrand would be one of them but there were a lot of other sort of smaller places that we went to. You know, Jura, for example, Jura. It's, it, people don't go there. Where's Jura? It's just very close to Burgundy. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of between Burgundy and the Alps. Right. So you've got Jura itself, which is quite hilly, really hilly. Limestone country, same as Burgundy. But then you've got Ojura, which is like in the foothills of the Alps. So you've got like similar food to Burgundy at one stage. And then you're getting into Alpine cooking further as you go up um but the thing that i I love about jura is they have this sort of very idiosyncratic wine um, made from a white grape called a savagnon and they make it rather in the same way as the spanish make sherry in other words they oxidize it to a certain extent so most people just think that it's gone off yeah but it's one of those wines that once you've got um, a taste for it you really love and also really it's really good for cooking with chapter six in contrast then is the place that you would never go back to well i've just thought and thought about this and you know it's almost disrespectful to say i'd never go back to a place because you never know 
I mean, I used to think that um, that the, the seafood cooking in Corsica was pretty ordinary, but the fact is that the mountain cooking in Corsica is fabulous. The ingredients in Corsica. So I'm sort of thinking, in a way, the one place I wouldn't go back to is somewhere that I really liked in the ser- in the series. Right? And there's one place actually in Jura again. There's a bar we went to, which is a bit like one of those Irish bars that were, when we were. I was going used to go to Ireland a lot in the in the 80s with my young kids and my friends. You know, one of those bars where you've got like the bar on one side and the grocers in the bar, but on the other side. Yeah, well, it was like that. And there was this woman just running it, and it was like full of bric a black, like sort of um, I don't know, sort of pirate statues of pirates and sort of old mandolins <laughs> and jugs and dust everywhere. And uh, she wasn't, it wasn't put on, it was just like, this is my bar. And I sort of thought, well, I wouldn't go back there because, in a way, we filmed there, but I haven't told anybody where it is. And I was sort of thinking, well, if I went back there and everybody had found it, I'd be so disappointed because that's one of the sort yeah. of spin offs of, unfortunate spin offs of doing travel food programs. Uh, I've sort of nailed it in, um, in the series where I, I quote from the, Hotel California album. One of the tracks says, "You call some place paradise and kiss it goodbye," and that's what I've spent all my life doing. Oh, you must come here; it's great. Yeah. So everybody goes there. Yeah. So that's the so one. This place is a fl- would- so this is your hidden gem, actually, it's but it's also it's another place. It's both. <laughs> so, uh, chapter seven then is your next big adventure. What destination do you have your eye I, on? I've got, I mean, I'm actually going um, to to Trieste in uh, in northern Italy because it's sort of um if I did another long weekend it's where I go it's again a bit like Tbilisi I've read about it but I think it's it's an Italian city but I think it's more like uh, Vienna on sea but mm. I haven't been there I know there's the sort of buildings are very sort of like empire type buildings like Vienna but I imagine the food would be a, a, a cross between um Viennese Austrian and Italian and everybody that goes there absolutely loves it. Also, what's really fascinating for me is, of course, one of my great literary heroes, James Joyce, lived there for a long time. So to follow the sort of James Joyce trail, not through Dublin, but through Trieste. Sounds it's not wonderful. a big trip, but it's like I'm really, really looking forward to it. And is that a holiday? Yeah, I'm going with my wife, Sass. And, you know, it's really good going with her because, yeah, just suppose we ended up filming there, that she's really good at sort of, finding the little quirky details that make sort of programs when you're in a city like that come alive. Wonderful. Well, I can't believe we're on to chapter eight, the last chapter of your travel diaries. And that is what's at the top of your bucket list. Um, well, I've got a massive bucket list, actually. So you want the top one. I'm just going to have a look. <laughs> do, you, do you have a list on your phone? Yeah, I do. Because it's just <laughs> that my... Um, so do I, actually. Uh, what you do? Yeah. I so, tick them off if I ever get you? to them, yeah. Here we are, bucket. I think probably it's Argentina and Buenos Aires um, because I've never been to South America anywhere. Um, so it's probably, I don't know if it's the, the best place to go in South America because I think it's, from what I can gather, it's like a, the most European city, city probably in the whole of the Americas. Um, so it's not sort of typical, but... I just hear it's so wonderful. The food, I'm sure, is going to be great. But it's slightly run down, I think. So not nearly as bad as somewhere like Havana. But I think there'd be a sort of um, wonderful 
slightly de- slight decrepitude, which I love. I mean, one of my other favourite cities in the world is Palermo for the same reason. It's sort of um, slightly scruffy, but there's a sort of like immense sort of atmosphere about it. So that and the tango, I just um, I just think it'd be the most interesting place to go. And of course, it's I suppose it's the most European. I don't know about Mexico City, which I love too, but. I think the sort of um, the combination of Spanish and Italian and probably British in 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 Buenos Aires would make it really really special. Mm. I'm sensing Rick Stein's Argentina needs to be <laughs> added to the <laughs> to next year. You never Fantastic! Know. You never know. Oh, brilliant! Well, thank you so much, That's Rick. Great, Holly. Those are your travel diaries. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's a flash. Oh, that was the utterly delightful international treasure, Rick Stein. As well as being such a pleasure to chat to, this had to be one of my favourite interviews as I was lucky enough to eat a fish pie that Rick had cooked from his new book, Secret France, after the interview was over. He offered it to me for my lunch and I'm not exaggerating when I say it was one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. It had these caramelised apple slices over the top, which I'd never thought would go with fish, but it really, really does. Mm, I'm just thinking about it now. That was very exciting. Rick's book, Secret France, is out now and the accompanying TV series is on BBC iPlayer. If you've enjoyed this episode, leaving a review or a rating really helps others to discover the podcast. And to find out who's on next week's show, come and find me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again next Tuesday. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.